Welcome to Beauty is Eternal, the art of being your best self for women. My name is Caitlin and I'm your host. Today's episode is called Life with Type 1 Diabetes with Fatima Shazad. Blood sugar, needles, and a positive attitude. Glowing and upbeat, Fatima is a petite 32-year-old who is radiant and has loving parents, a loving husband, plus a great job. If you just met her and you did not know any better, you might think she's had it easy in life. But there is more to her story that is hidden just beneath the surface. Fatima needs to monitor her blood sugar 24-7 and has to wake up in the middle of every night to check her blood sugar and eat something. If Fatima forgets to take her insulin, or takes the wrong type of insulin, or if she sleeps through her glucose monitor alarm during the night, she may never wake up again. Many people like Fatima live their lives not knowing what will happen from one day to the next. If you look at Fatima, you would be very surprised to hear that she has an illness so serious she could die any time if she makes a simple mistake or loses access to her medicine. And please go to beautyiseternal.com to look at her picture for yourself. And if she'd been born 100, 200 years earlier, before insulin was developed as a cure for diabetes, she would have been dead 20 years ago. This is her reality. This is not the reality for most of us. And that is why I want to share her story because compassion and empathy can only grow when we learn to walk in the shoes of others before we judge them. It sounds silly, perhaps, but it is the truth. She is actually my sister-in-law, married to my brother. The first years I knew Fatima, I knew that she had diabetes, but I did not understand how serious or how deadly it was until the last couple of years. Fatima has had diabetes since she was a teenager. How does a healthy teen develop diabetes and go on nevertheless to live a healthy and happy life? How does she have to manage her illness on a day-to-day -day basis? How will having diabetes affect her ability to get pregnant and have children? How does she stay positive? How often does she face moments where she thinks diabetes will kill her? Thank you for coming on the show today, Fatima. You're one of my all-time favorite people, and you teach me so much. So thanks for being a guest. I'm so happy to be here. <laughs> you were not born with diabetes, but you developed it when you were a teenager. Can you talk about some of the first signs you had that maybe something wasn't quite right with your health? I was not born with type 1. I was diagnosed when I was 13 years old, and my health otherwise was completely fine. You know, I was pretty active, pretty energetic. I, I still feel the same way today. But when I was 13, I, I remember I was drinking a lot more water than I normally do. I started carrying around in middle school, which was you know, not, not very normal at the time, but started carrying around these 
water bottles in classes. And I don't think it was like a very popular thing to do at that time or at that age. And my dad took notice and my school took notice. I remember I had to use the bathroom really frequently. So I had to pee pretty urgently. And that's not something that was normal for me either. And I remember times we're in class, you know, when you're sitting in a classroom, you have to raise your hand and ask to go to the bathroom. I was doing that several times a day to the degree that um, some of my teachers thought that I was just doing that to get out of class. And I remember a couple of times um, it was really, really difficult to convince a teacher that, you know, the fourth time within the first half of the day, having to go to the bathroom was actually legitimate, especially, you know, when it's a 13 year old girl or any 13 year old child. I think the teacher first suspected that it was not related to health. So one day we were driving, my mom and dad and I, and I was super thirsty in the car and he had this soda that I really, really didn't like. It was called Vimto. It's a, it's a grape soda. I just really, really hated the flavor. It tastes like medicine to me. And he said that was the only thing that he had. And I told him, that's fine. I'll pinch my nose and I'll, I'll drink some. Um, as if pinching your nose does anything. <laughs> and I drank the whole thing. If you can imagine, like chugging an entire soda that you like is difficult. But I, I chugged the entire soda that I did not like. And my dad, in that moment, told my mom, "I don't know that that's normal. Um, maybe you should make an appointment for her because um, he used to work in New York. So my mom would take me to the hospital or make this appointment for me." And a couple of days later, she did take me to the doctors. They checked my blood sugar. And it was over 400 in the clinic. And just for reference, the normal range is 80 to 120 about. So 400 is well out of range for somebody, for anybody really, but especially somebody my age um, that doesn't have any other health issues. So that was how I was diagnosed. It was pretty quick. And it, not all people will suspect that, that, that there's something wrong right away. Um, but my dad, he's a physician, so he picked up on those symptoms pretty quickly. I know that the, a lot of other people go through these symptoms for a very long time until they get ill and have um, much more severe sort of side effects, like, you know, even seizures or falling into a coma or just lethargy to a degree that really impacts their lives. They, they suffer for a long time before their diagnosis. So it was a good thing that he picked up on that pretty quickly. Yeah, that is quite lucky. I can imagine many teenagers if they had those type of symptoms and they didn't have somebody with a bit more knowledge to look out for them, they could have spent a couple of years in the early stages of diabetes without realizing it. Yeah, that's definitely true. And, you know, the way that diabetes um, type one works is it's an autoimmune disease. So what ends up happening is nobody actually knows how it happens, but the theory behind how the autoimmune event takes place is that you get a cold or a virus or that you get sick and your immune system goes haywire and stops recognizing your own islet cells, which are your insulin producing cells. So basically your body is now attacking your insulin producing cells and it's not a one-time process. It's a gradual process over time. So if you can imagine that you have a reservoir of insulin producing cells that are slowly being attacked by your immune system, um, that's when you start having these symptoms of a higher blood sugar because you're not producing enough insulin. That process can take anywhere from a couple of months to a couple of years. And it, I think it varies in many people. And some new research suggests that it can last for up to 10 years, but that 
production of insulin that you retain because the, uh, the immune event hasn't completely destroyed all of your insulin producing cells doesn't mean that you have enough insulin to help you function like somebody who, who doesn't have type one or, or does produce insulin. It, it takes a big hit up front, if that makes sense. Like, and, and these are just examples, like rough examples. But if I have 100% of my insulin producing cells and then I get type one and my, my body stops recognizing it, the immune system is really, really effective, right? It, it starts killing things off pretty quickly to, to what it thinks is doing is protecting you. I would say probably 90% of my insulin function was gone probably in the first couple of months. So I think people would, if type one goes undetected at first, it takes a keen eye and, and somebody who really understands these symptoms and is aware of them to notice them in the very beginning. But soon after, maybe a couple of weeks or even you know, a short number of months is when it becomes really acute. So I don't think it would actually take a couple of years to notice it. And that's just to give light to how um, drastic the symptoms can be if you, if you don't treat with insulin quickly for type 1 diabetes. In your case, what caused type 1 diabetes? So nobody knows. Nobody really knows what causes type 1. They know it's an autoimmune disease. And the theory being that a foreign body, whether it's a virus or some sort of event in your life that confuses your immune system. It's similar to things like uh, multiple sclerosis or other autoimmune diseases or, or, or vitiligo, where your body just decides this certain type of cell I no longer recognize and I'm going to attack. So you basically, it's your body attacking itself. And for me, interestingly, nobody in my family, and I used to think of it differently, right? So I, I would think, who in my family has diabetes and try to draw it to that. But type one and type two in how they form or how they develop in the body are not comparable at all. The symptoms are comparable because what is actually happening to the body and the symptoms can be the same, but how it occurs is very, very different. So well, you mean the I cause is different for both of them? Yes, exactly. So for type one, it's an autoimmune disease. It would make more sense for me to try to understand who else has an autoimmune disease in my family and why I carry that genetic predisposition versus looking at who has type two diabetes in my family, because that while it has a, a large genetic component, it's onset and how it actually develops is completely different and has no autoimmune component. Now that I think back, I, I spent many, many years thinking, oh, well, I'm the only person in my family that to ever get type one. But really the question I should have been asking is, am I the first person in my family to have an autoimmune disorder? And the answer to that is no. I do have some people in my family, my dad's siblings, my aunt and uncle. I have two family members that have vitiligo, which is basically your immune system attacking your melanin producing cells. That's why they start losing pigmentation in their skin. And I do have some family members with thyroid disease, which can be linked to the immune system attacking, as I understand it, your thyroid gland, and, and you lose production of the hormone there that then causes you to have thyroid disease. So I do have autoimmune predisposition, but nobody in my family that I know of in my very large family has ever had type 1 diabetes. It is interesting in that I, I might be the first person to think of it this way in terms of connecting autoimmune diseases versus specific autoimmune conditions um, and trying to learn more about the genetics that way. And we're learning more about genetics and what's more linked and what makes you more likely to have XYZ and, and ultimately how to maybe prevent those things or minimize the risk, whether it's figuring out how to delay the onset in the future. I think there's a lot that can be learned from really understanding the nuances behind what's going on. So 
I want to know about your experience when you first got diagnosed with diabetes. What was your initial reaction to that? You're 13 years old, so at that point you're, I guess, in a very precarious stage of life. Did it really hit you that you had a disease you'd have to live with for the rest of your life? Was it something that your parents tried to tell you, oh, it's not so bad? What was your reaction and how did your family react? That's a good question. I think something I always say is I was diagnosed at an age where I was old enough to take care of myself, but really young enough not to really remember life any other way. I vaguely remember not having to worry about my blood sugars or taking injections and things like that. But when I was first diagnosed, I remember the physician came in after they did the blood test, the finger stick, and just, you know, that 400 initial number. And the physician didn't really have a great bedside manner. She came in and she just said, oh yeah, she has diabetes to my mom. And of course, my mom didn't really understand what that meant either for her skinny 13-year-old daughter who's otherwise super active. So it was a shock emotionally, obviously, for my mom, but it was also delivered in in a way that was very poor, (laughs) I think. When I heard that, of course, I didn't really know what that meant at all. So it didn't hit me in a, in a way that I was like, oh God, my life has changed forever. But I think watching my mom go through the motions literally right in front of me because the doctor was speaking to her and not me in letting that new news like wash over her. In that moment, I remember her looking very, very upset, of course. And my automatic emotional response to that was not showing any fear. I think I took it in stride and I think it was easy for me to take it in stride because as far as type one goes, when I was initially diagnosed, I had an easier time than I have now just because of that idea that you still retain some of your insulin production um, Mm -hmm. and insulin function up front, which is very helpful. I mean, it was definitely still difficult. It was a complete lifestyle change for me, but the dire nature of it didn't hit until maybe several years later. And I think I just stepped into a role of protecting my parents from feeling sad about what I was going through. And I think later in life that ends up taking a different form where I, you know, when you're trying to protect somebody's feelings or emotions, especially with a chronic disease, you're, you're basically, without knowing it, making it a lonelier experience. And um, I think in the last couple of years, it's been, it's been really helpful to talk openly about diabetes and being frank around, you know, what's hard and what isn't hard and building safe spaces. And I've been doing that a lot more with my husband, Dylan, (laughs) and friends and, and my parents as well. So it's been an interesting emotional journey. How did your life change after that initial experience together with your mother in the hospital? There's sort of a grace period where you haven't lost all of your insulin. You had some time to adjust to it. Yeah, it's a good question. And I can really speak to that more now since I'm experiencing it differently now. So if you can imagine, I'll give you two scenarios. So one, just what it really looks like to manage type one. So the treatment for type one is hormone replacement therapy because the cells that produce insulin are now being destroyed. So you have to replace the insulin in your body and you have to match it up to your carbohydrate intake and also your protein intake to a lesser degree, but to still an important degree. It's not an easy calculation. If you look at the back of a pill bottle or a medication bottle, it says take, you know, for example, two Tylenols every four to six hours and do not exceed X number, right? And it'll say for this weight or this age, it'll give you the details. It's very, very specific. Insulin administration is not specific at all. 
it's trial and error. And for the same person on two different days or on the same day, the number of units of insulin you take can completely change. And I think that's something that people don't really understand. You know, they think, oh, well, you take insulin and you're good. You're going to have lunch. You take a couple of units of insulin and you're fine. It's just like taking a Tylenol for a headache to go away. Absolutely not the case. Everything you do affects your blood sugar. So the amount of sleep that you got, um, the amount of stress that you have, which is causing you to produce cortisol that you're not really paying attention to because you don't have to, but that cortisol that you're producing is making you less sensitive to insulin. So if I'm taking, for example, five units for a meal and I have a stressful day or there's more cortisol in my blood because I didn't sleep well that night, maybe I need seven units of insulin. But there's really no way for me to know that until I've eaten I've taken the insulin and then I check my blood sugar soon after. So really you're on this roller coaster of just figuring it out and making sure that you're trying to keep your blood sugar in a healthy range from 80 to maybe 120 or 150 throughout your whole, not only day, your whole life, right? So when your body is helping you with that basal amount of insulin that's still producing, the ups and downs are not as dramatic as they would be if you're producing absolutely no insulin, right? So that gives you a picture of why it feels, I hate to use the word easier because it's not easy in any way, but in fact, it is a bit easier than it is if you're not producing any insulin. So the way it looked for me as a 13-year-old, you're on these different types of insulin in the beginning because that's what was available. The way your body works is if you even look at food, <laughs> really, or if you smell food, your body goes into this biological state where it gets ready, right? Like there's a reason that you salivate when you smell food, right? It's a chemical reaction. It signals to the brain and your body is getting ready to produce insulin for sugar that is breaking down in your bloodstream. That's all to say that it works very, very fast, right? Exogenous insulin. So insulin that I'm taking from a bottle and from a vial, the first type of insulin that I took starts working in your system in about, I think it was an hour. This was like mind you, like 20 years ago, so I don't remember exactly, but it takes almost an hour. So you have to time it such that you're taking your insulin 30 minutes to 45 minutes ahead of your meal. And you want to make sure that you're living a good quality of life and your blood sugars aren't going up and down through the whole day. So I would eat the same exact meal at the same exact time for, I think, maybe five years or six years, because that was the older type of insulin, right? So I would wake up 8 a.m. every single day, eat the same exact thing, go back to sleep, make sure I had a snack around 10 because that was when the second tail of the insulin would start working. I would have the same lunch at the same time. At dinner, I would take insulin again, same exact dinner and same exact snack before going to bed. So my life was very regimented. Like I went from being a carefree 13 year old to this crazy regiment where even if I was hanging out with friends, if I was doing anything, there was no really dosing or carb counting as we call it now. It was just a fixed amount of carbs and, and a fixed insulin dosage to take every single day. So if, if I went out and somebody decided to get fries and split it with me, or if I went out and hung out at 4 p.m. at like, you know, the mall, there was no getting a pretzel or a milkshake. That just didn't exist because it wasn't in the window or it wasn't in the carb count that was allowed for me. And that changed with new insulins coming onto the market, insulins that worked faster, insulins that you didn't have to refrigerate, insulins that you didn't have to draw up in a syringe from a vial. You use these pens that are much easier to administer. So I went from two insulin injections a day with two different types of insulin for a couple of years. Later, 
I did have a stint where I used an insulin pump, which makes things a little bit easier as well to what I'm using now, which is multiple daily injections. And basically what I'm doing is carb counting and dosing for what I eat and correcting with the correction factor, which just means taking more insulin to either bring my blood sugar down or eating sugar to bring my blood sugar up. Really the goal is just to keep your blood sugar afloat in the normal range. That was, I think that was a very long answer to what you asked, but Uh it's very complicated. So I want to give a good overall picture of what it looks like. In your current day-to-day life, how do you manage your diabetes? Can you walk us through how you handle each day and each night at the moment? Yeah. So let's say a normal day. So if I wake up in the morning, I'll check my blood sugar. Usually it's in a good range. Let's say I've been coasting at around 90 and that's a good night. I'll wake up. I will take four units of insulin usually. I mean, it just depends on what I end up eating, but I do like to keep my morning meal pretty standardized. So I'll have a gluten-free piece of toast, um, egg white, and a matcha. (laughs) I will dose for that morning meal and I will watch my blood sugar because I now have a continuous glucose monitor, which tells me my the trend of my blood glucose every five minutes, it's taking a reading. Um, And I can tell if it's going up or if it's going down and what I need to do based on that. I've taken my insulin and now I'm at work. If my blood sugar one hour after my meal is around 140 and trending upwards, I might take one unit to bring it back down. One unit translates roughly to bringing down my blood sugar about 40 milligrams per deciliter. So I just call it 40 points (laughs) as if it's a game. So I'll take one unit that will bring down my blood sugar about 40 milligrams per deciliter, about 40 points, you know, bring it back down to 110. Of course, that takes one hour to actually happen, but that's just an idea of me trying to bump my blood sugar in the right direction. If it's around noon, I'm going to start thinking about lunch. I'll dose for lunch again. If I overdose for lunch, I will start seeing my blood sugar trending downwards. So something that um, you can imagine I might see on my phone, which is where I see my blood sugars, is a blood sugar of 70 pointed downwards. Then I know that I should eat just a little bit. And just to give you an idea of how sensitive your body is to glucose entering the bloodstream, let's say 15 grams of carbs roughly translates to a rise in your blood sugar of 50 uh, milligrams per deciliter. So if I was 70 plus 50 and I ate, let's say a date, which is usually about 15 grams, I'm bumping it up to 120, right? So there's a lot of math, a lot of precision in what I'm eating. And not everything is nicely packed like a date is. So let's say I have um, a juice box or something like that. I might not drink the entire thing. I might drink exactly enough for 15 carbs to bump, bump my blood sugar. Um, I always have candy on me. I always have something sweet on me, something fast acting, something with simple sugars that will just break down and enter my bloodstream pretty quickly. And unlike insulin, which takes about an hour to bring your blood sugar down, glucose entering your bloodstream, you can see the result of it. Depending on the type of and then the refinement of the glucose, it'll bump your blood sugar within five to 15 minutes. So you can see how quickly glucose affects your blood sugars and I always say that I'm only aware of all this because of the technology and because it matters for me in terms of type one um, management, but it really matters a lot for people um, day to day in their moods and how they feel and what type of energy they're feeling. You know, I, there's a lot of 
the research now and a lot of attention to the types of meals you're eating such that your attention is optimized for whatever task that you need to do. I think that's all very important and it's, it's getting a lot more attention now, which is gratifying for me because I've been doing this for so long. <laughs> this might be kind of a silly question, but can you use glucose as well as fructose? No, that's a great question. So fructose is very fast acting. So different things will delay how slowly the glucose breaks down in your blood. And one of those things is fat. So if I'm eating, for example, a bite of a Cinnabon, right, which is very fatty, very sugary, mm -hmm. very carby, that's not going to break down in my blood as quickly as me gulping some orange juice. And if I'm having a low blood sugar, I want something that's going to work very quickly. So orange juice, fructose is going to break down in my blood and raise my blood sugar very quickly, which is why this whole idea that a glass of orange juice in the beginning of the day is good for you is pretty false, right? It's, <laughs> it's really, it's not good for you, at least not in the way that it's marketed. To me, a tall glass of orange juice is just looking at a nightmare. That's just uh -huh. too blood much blood sugar spike. It is, and it's not good for anybody, you know. I think the benefit that you get from the vitamin C and the fiber can definitely be achieved in a smaller um, <laughs> serving size or from a whole fruit instead, you know, like um, not squeezing three oranges into a cup. Exactly. And I think that's something that's very hard as somebody with type one who's hyper aware of the nutrition and not only the nutrition, but how that nutrition profile behaves in your blood and in your system um, is something that it's hard to really understand if you're not seeing it take that action in your bloodstream. But I see it every single day, right? Literally every single day with everything I put in my mouth. I see how it's impacting my blood sugar because I can see my blood sugar every five minutes. And that's not something that people see day to day. So it's really hard to make that connection for people and say like, hey, you know, I know that you've been told your whole life that a glass of orange juice is good for you. It's probably not that great for you. <laughs> Maybe your body can handle it, but handling it doesn't mean that it's good for you, you know? Well, you certainly have a lot of self-awareness about what foods cause what, at least, you know, blood sugar reactions in your body way more than the average person because you see it in live time. Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny. It's something that I can't pretend I would have been aware of if I didn't have type 1 because the average person goes up against a lot of false information and gross marketing. And it's hard to sift through what is healthy, what to trust. And for me, thankfully, if I eat something and I've been convinced by their marketing for some reason that you know it's good for me, and then I eat it and I look at my blood sugars, I can say, nope, quantitatively, not the best thing or easiest thing to eat, right? So I have a check whereas I think people don't necessarily have an easy time really understanding how it's impacting their body in real time and immediately. That's certainly true. Yeah. What kind of sacrifices have you had to make in your life, Fatima? Has having diabetes impacted which places you travel to, which jobs you take? How has it prevented or changed your plans or given you new ideas? That's a great question. It's something I'm, I've only realized, I think, more in the last couple of years of my life. Certainly, as a young adult, when I was trying to make a decision around what I would do for a career, I think there's a lot of factors that went into the decision of like where I am today. And I know that people with type 1 diabetes have accomplished so much and have beat so many odds and really pushed through with a lot of hard work and become things like doctors and different occupations that 
are pretty demanding in lifestyle. I think early on, I was pretty aware of the impact that stress had on my blood sugars. And pretty early on, I had decided that having a schedule that was demanding, that wasn't very stable in terms of my ability to create a routine, that wasn't going to work for me. And I, and I will say that it was a heavy consideration at the time where I was deciding if I wanted to pursue a medical school path, just the idea of a residency and working hard hours and not being able to give a lot of attention to my body and my health. I think it was certainly consideration. I don't think it was the deciding factor, but it was definitely a large consideration. And that was one of the earliest, I think, impacts in terms of deciding what I was going to do. That was one of the earliest times I can remember as like an undergrad or a little bit after I graduated from college that that really went into my calculus of what I was going to do. One thing that I <laughs> realize now that I really should have taken advantage of is with standardized testing, we're timed, right? We, we've got certain amount of time for an exam. And really this applies to every exam, but standardized testing for some reason, which I think is of course very faulty, decides our fate of higher ed, whether it's college or graduate school. And preparing for those tests and taking those tests was very difficult for me because as I said, a low blood sugar or a high blood sugar, it's not like you can just set up an ideal four-hour block to take the LSAT or the MCAT such that your blood sugars are perfect. I actually had to bring in a cup of apple juice, which they made me pour out of the bottle and put into a cup for the LSAT. Mostly people go in and try to make sure that, you know, their pencil is sharpened or that they might have enough water or they remember what they did, but I'm going in making sure that I don't have to stop because I'm having a low blood sugar, which lasts for 15 minutes to come up. And then the symptoms of those sometimes take hours to shake off. So it's like telling somebody with a migraine to go into a standardized test often um, if things are not controlled properly. And, and I think that made a big impact. I don't think that was a sacrifice in terms of how you ask, but it did make a huge impact, I think, in my confidence in those sort of deterministic parts of my career. And then there was, of course, the U.S. healthcare system is very crazy. I went to business school. I concentrated in entrepreneurship as one of my focuses, and I worked at a few startups. Any inclination to work at an early stage startup or start my own venture really was not a possibility because in order to do that, you have to buy your own health insurance or pay a penalty for not having health insurance, or you have to have the right health insurance to actually cover you. And not having health insurance is just not an option for somebody with type 1 diabetes. You will either be forced to ration your insulin, which is literally killing people in America daily. I've uh, read about the deaths from people who try and ration their insulin and something goes wrong. It's really yeah. scary. Yeah. And, you know, I actually had an episode where I had to do that. Of course, you know, thankfully it didn't have to last that long, but I did go through that. And at age 26, you in America age out of the ability to be covered by a parent's insurance. And for me, that was the age at which I was in graduate school. I did not have a job and I was a graduate student, so I did not have any money and I, I wasn't able to be covered under my mother's insurance anymore. And I wasn't married, so I didn't have a spouse whose insurance I could be covered under. So basically you have no safety net and you have a chronic disease and you have to buy insulin. And I remember applying for state coverage, which thankfully Massachusetts has MassHealth that can be very helpful 
at least it was helpful for my specific scenario, but it doesn't kick in right away such that, you know, I have to go through the paperwork and they'll retroactively pay for whatever I have to pay for out of pocket. But I remember going to the pharmacy to pick up my insulin and they charged me full. I think it was $520 for a one month supply of insulin. And I was shocked. Of course, I didn't have cash to pay for it. So I paid for it on a credit card. And I, of course, clutched onto that receipt for the reimbursement. But there are a lot of people who don't have credit cards or they're maxed out or $500 on top of your life already just for your medication is a lot. And that's only for the insulin. You have to remember that there's also, you have to have syringes or pen needles to actually administer the insulin. You have test strips for your glucose meter, your glucometer. You have the continuous glucose monitor that you're paying for. It's not just the insulin. I think that's the focus point. But type one requires at least four or five prescriptions that have to be filled routinely to survive. That was hard. And I remember thinking to myself, okay, I'll just ration this for a bit. You know, maybe I won't take as much before having to refill my next prescription. And, you know, at that time, it wasn't very popular in the news or the stories of people dying from rationing hadn't really surfaced. But it's something I certainly experienced, even if it was for a couple of days or a, a week or two you know, something that I fell into doing without realizing that it could be like very detrimental to my health. It just seemed like what you had to do to survive and make things work. Well, for people who live in Europe, like me, it's a little bit shocking to hear that it costs over $500 for a one month supply of insulin. For comparison in Germany, I was looking it up recently, I think it's five euros for a packet of insulin. It is really scary that if you are dependent on insulin to live and you kind of fall between the cracks, even for a short period of time, like you did, between healthcare plans, yeah. that it's so expensive that people die because they can't afford it. Yeah, it's a very sad reality. And when I hear those kind of prices, uh, you know, <laughs> I'm like, oh, what are we doing here? Um, yeah. And there's a lot of people who've moved abroad and whether it's for graduate school or a job and don't return back to the States because they just couldn't afford to have to pay for their insulin and their medication. I mean, insulin is not an option. You have to have insulin. I would not survive more than a couple of days, maybe a week or maybe a little bit longer, but you just don't survive without insulin if you have type 1 diabetes. Have you ever had a moment or periods of time when you actually thought you were going to die from it? Yes. So the short answer is absolutely yes. And the type of event that causes that thought, they're different ones, right? So for example, before I had the continuous glucose monitor, which will beep in the middle of the night if I have a low blood sugar to wake me up, before that, you were relying on your body to wake you up or you were just staying awake and making sure that your blood sugar doesn't drop in the middle of your, your sleep. It's a very real thing for people with type 1 diabetes to die while they're sleeping because you're asleep for a long time. If you have a low blood sugar, maybe you know, you've know you lost the symptoms because if you have frequent low blood sugars, sometimes your adrenaline won't kick in to wake you up. Sometimes not having enough glucose in your body can make you feel very lethargic. And if you're asleep already, it's very hard to wake up from that. There is a whole host of reasons why you might not wake up. So to answer your question, I think this is shocking for most people, and it's shocking for me when I say it out loud. <laughs> you know, it's something that you, you just sort of live with and until you hit the brakes and really reflect on, don't realize how crazy it is. But I think at least once a month or maybe even more frequently for people who have a harder time or, or going through um, a difficult time with their glucose patterns at night, 
I have gone to sleep thinking maybe this is the last time I, I will remember looking at my blood sugar because I don't know what's going to happen in the middle of the night and I don't know if I'm going to wake up. It's uh, whew, It's very hard to think about. I think it's a very real fear and I think that's why the continuous glucose monitor has been such an, a welcome improvement in the lives of people with type 1. Actually, in the, in the beginning when they first introduced the technology in order to be covered by insurance for the continuous glucose monitor, you had to prove that you had severe nighttime low blood sugars, which was something that people really rolled their eyes at because it was like, of course I have low blood sugars at night. This, I'm type 1 diabetic. It's just a part of my life. You know, It was that the insurance companies were asking you to record them. And while you're having this event in the middle of the night where you feel like you're, literally you feel like you're dying, you're not checking your blood sugar because you know you're low, right? You're not taking the time to check your blood sugar with, with the glucometer. This is going to be a fun night. I mean, do yeah. all these things for fun. Yeah. And you're not going to do it. And it's sad because you end up having to check your blood sugar because you're thinking, I need this to prove to the insurance company that I am possibly experiencing a fatal event in my sleep. So I need you to cover this. Right. So that was the, the indication in the beginning that you had to prove and your doctor would submit to the insurance company on your behalf. And then you would get approved for the continuous glucose monitor, which is pretty crazy, I think. So to answer your question, yeah, I think the sense of, you know, your own mortality is, is real. And it's always current for people with type 1 diabetes, whether it's nighttime lows or taking an accidental dose of insulin that's higher than you thought, which will drop you low, or just experiencing a low blood sugar that you, you just don't know why you're having that low blood sugar, whether it's you exercise too hard. There's just so many reasons it can happen. And aside from trying to minimize risk for complications in the future that can be as a result of high blood sugars over time in your blood. There's also the very acute, will I not actually make it through this acute low blood sugar event that people also think about. Overall, I think it's very intense and it's interesting because you wouldn't know that people go through this on the surface because it's a chronic disease and you always get, you don't look sick or you look pretty active, you must be fine. It's been nice to have something like the continuous glucose monitor to be able to give your blood sugars a voice and a visual and say, actually, look, it's pointing down with two arrows. It's red and it says low. That has been a good advocate for me, I think. And, and it was harder in the past to say, actually, I'm really not well, even though I look well. What's really scary about that is the little room that there is for human error, right? Yeah. We're all human. And we make mistakes with everything. Hospitals make mistakes. I accidentally took 1,800 milligrams of ibuprofen a couple months ago. I meant to take 600. I thought I was taking three 200 milligram pills. I ended up taking three 600 milligram pills, being like, oh my God, I didn't mean to do this, but you know, I swallowed them. It was too late. Yeah. So if you confuse a dose, if you take too much, you take too little, you make a human error, can actually be fatal. That's a really frightening thought when I really just imagine what it's like to live with that. Yeah. And one example actually of that was I'm on two types of insulin. You need to take your mealtime insulin, which is fast acting, and then something called basal insulin, which is basically what it sounds like, your base insulin, right? Glucose is basically used to give energy to every single cell in your body to function, right? So you need some level of glucose in your body and to metabolize that glucose so that it is used for the energy for the functions that your body needs, 
you need insulin. Cell, imagine the red blood cell and glucose molecule floating around in your blood. Insulin is the bridge that allows the red blood cell to actually metabolize and use that energy, right? So that's what the basal insulin is for. And I'm on two different types. And the pen for both of them at one point, one was colored neon green and one was colored yellow. (laughs) And they look exactly the same if you are in dim lighting. They're just so similar that you can always make that mistake. And that was something that impacted me one day where we were on vacation and I reached over my nightly dose of the, um, the basal insulin is 11 units. And to give color to what the max my fast acting insulin would be, the dosage would be maximum, maybe five units, right? So I'm doubling it. So imagine five units times 50 to bring your blood sugar down, right? Each unit is 50 points. That means I'm going well below what I should be. I'm just dosing without eating too, right? Because you don't eat after you take basal insulin because it works over a 48-hour period versus a one to four-hour period. Basically, I, I administered a lethal dose of insulin and I didn't realize it until something tipped me off and I realized it. And I, I can remember what I ate. I ate an entire bag of Skittles, which is unheard of. Like I can never do that. I had a cup of hot water with honey poured into it that Dylan went and got for me to just chug. I ate, I think, three dates. And I was eating all these high glucose things and some sugar tablets and all these things. And my blood sugar after all of that only came back up to about 160, which is a pretty decent number. By the way, this was at 11.30 p.m. I was going to bed because that's when I take my nighttime, my basal insulin. I could have easily not noticed and gone to sleep and literally just never woken up. That was a near-death experience. I think that just happened by mistake. You know, I just grabbed the wrong pen. Anyway, people noticed that this was really, really dangerous. It wasn't just me. And now they have changed the bright neon yellow one, which is the fast acting to red (laughs) appropriately. So I don't make that mistake. Yeah, that's so scary. When was that? It was, uh, I think, a year and a half ago. We were in Iceland. And that was the other thing. Even scarier. Yeah, it was very scary because we were in a hotel in Iceland, a small hotel that if we needed medical care, if we needed more sugar or something, you know, it wasn't our home environment. It wasn't easy to get that right away. So yeah, I remember looking at Dylan and thinking, oh my God, is this the final hour of my life? It was pretty scary. It sounds terrifying. How does it work with your partnership? What is it like for the partner of someone with type 1 diabetes? I think it depends on the partner. In your relationship, how do you manage it together? How does it affect your relationship? Yeah, no, that's an important question. I think I'm really lucky in that, you know, when we met, Dylan had, he knew right away, I'd shared it right away, just casually in the, in the first time we met, but he knows a lot about nutrition. As you know, I think you come from a very nutrition aware family and also just his experience as an athlete. I think he has more knowledge around nutrition than the average population. And that helped me immensely because I didn't have to explain a lot of things. And he just understood a lot of the nuances. In addition to that, I think Dylan is very, very good at giving me the space that I need and not being a presence that's more of an alarm. To put it frankly, he's not annoying in any way. <laughs> my sister Megan might disagree with that. But I agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> 
it's a chronic disease, right? So when an, an event happens, you can't react in a way that's like, oh my God, I can't believe this is happening. It can't be this like extreme reaction because it happens all the time. And if you have that extreme reaction every time, it's exhausting for me as the person with type one to manage your feelings around it, right? So he's very, very, I think he's very well aware of how to just be a support and not to add burden to what I am already experiencing, which is which is something that I think a lot of people end up figuring out how to do and do it to varying degrees of success. <laughs> Dylan is, I think he's exceptional in that. And I don't think it's just because of type one. I think that's just how he is. And it's really benefited me <laughs> to have a partner that has that predisposition. Tell me a little bit about waking up during the night. I know you wear the glucose monitor. And as I understand, he also gets alerts during the night when you need to check your blood sugar. Yeah. So technology is pretty awesome. So I sleep pretty heavily. I am that person that will sleep through an alarm that's blaring for like 30 minutes and you get this thing called, you know, alarm fatigue. You're just not hearing it anymore. I can roll over and just shut it off and and not even know I'm, I'm doing that in my sleep. So Dylan is able to see my blood sugars on his phone in real time. And, you know, sometimes I'm not looking at my blood sugars and he can text me or call me or, you know, just before this call, actually, he poked in and said, hey, I just got an alert if you want to look at it. Never sort of authoritative in any way, more just a gentle nudge to look at things. About your question on how it looks like during the night, he has it set up on his phone such that if I drop below, I think we set the threshold at 80 milligrams per deciliter, he will get a phone call. And it will start beeping on his phone because he has two different apps <laughs> to alert me. And he'll just roll over and sort of nudge me. And if I haven't already taken care of it, there's this other reinforcement that can help me, which is much more preferable. I'd love to be woken up every night with a gentle little nudge <laughs> rather than a blaring alarm. Just that human touch around, hey, you know, I'm also taking care of watching your blood sugars and you're not in this alone. I think just the small, small aspect of somebody else carrying a part of this disease is very comforting. Well, for now, it's the two of you monitoring your blood sugar together, but I know that you guys are thinking of having children in the next few years. And as I understand it, you'll be at a high-risk pregnancy. Can Mm -hmm. you tell me your thoughts about getting pregnant, about having children, about going through that whole process with diabetes? Yeah, it's certainly something that you have to think hard about, I think, in terms of getting in the mind space of experiencing a pregnancy with type 1 diabetes, keeping your blood sugars in range, keeping yourself in a place where not only is your pregnancy healthy for you, but also healthy for your baby, of course. My doctor and I, because of type 1, my endocrinologist, cleared me basically over a year ago and said, unsolicited, <laughs> said, <laughs> if you wanted to get pregnant, your blood sugars are in a place where I think that you'd be healthy to carry out a healthy pregnancy. And that's just to say that I know that a lot of people have a hard time controlling their blood sugars and getting their average blood sugar down to a healthy level. And, and you know, I've been in a place where um, for a couple of years, it was difficult for me just because of changing biology. I'm not producing as much insulin anymore. My grad school experience was immensely difficult in terms of the erratic schedule. So I never want to say that it's because of 
the person themselves, but really it's just external biological and, and logistical factors that can make things very difficult. But that's just to say that pregnancy is a very, with type 1 diabetes, is a very thought out. They joke that the first trimester with type 1 is really thinking of pregnancy because you have to get your blood sugars in the swing of things where you're being almost militant, at least for me, around what you're eating and, and the swings in your blood sugar, right? You want to keep that trend line of your blood sugars as close to normal as possible because you really want to take care of your mental health as well, right? Like, as I had explained, if your blood sugar shoots high and it is coasting at, let's say, 200, you can't just take insulin and expect it to come down in five minutes. Chemically, biologically, it takes over an hour, if not more, for that blood sugar to come back down to a normal range. So I'm not pregnant, but I can only imagine if I were pregnant and I had a high blood sugar and I know that I am growing a child inside of me, the guilt of housing this child in a body that has a blood sugar that's high and might be impacting the development of the child. From a mental perspective, I think it's a lot of guilt and a lot of emotion to carry. It's something that you have to like coach yourself around. So I've been reading a book about type 1 diabetes and pregnancy just, just to wrap my head around the idea. It's been really helpful because it's written by two women with type 1 and they talk about how to address that emotional burden and that guilt that mothers or pregnant women with type 1 diabetes go through that is really unique. I'm not sure that I can think of other diseases that present in the same way. Of course, they have other forms of immensely difficult physical burden, but this is one where I think it's very unique, where oftentimes mothers who are type 1 who are pregnant, the main thing that their practitioners and their doctors are telling them is, please go easy on yourself because it's safe for the baby. It's okay, but you need to stay healthy and in a good mind space and you can't be stressed out because of course, stress leads to cortisol, which then mm. this catch 22 around your blood sugars being high. I can only imagine how difficult that would be. You should keep a diary when you're pregnant and turn it into a book afterwards. Yeah. You it's know, a guide I, to help other type one diabetics who want to have children. I think that's a great idea. And I'm reading something like that right now. I think it's maybe one of the first books of its kind, if not the first book, and it's been so helpful for me. So I actually thought about that same idea just so I could share other perspectives since women with type one diabetes come from all different backgrounds and different experiences. So adding more stories to that experience that people connect to, I, I think I'd love to do that. <laughs> yeah, I think that would be amazing and it would be something that could benefit other people. Yeah. So switching themes a little bit, I know it seems kind of odd to ask you what's the best part about something really difficult, but you're really good at being positive and looking at things in a positive light because we can look at something and see it as terrible, or we can look at something and see the good that came from it. And you're so good at that. <laughs> what do you think the most positive things that have come from diabetes have been for you? I think there are some pretty tangible positives that come out of having a hardship or chronic disease specifically like type one, where you're constantly, for example, confronted with your own mortality, right? Like when you have any sort of life jarring or any event that sort of threatens in your life or puts your mortality in perspective, you know, you go to an introspective space. And I think a lot of that makes you feel more connected to the people that you love and make you say things that you wish you would have said sooner, things like that. It just clears the horizon for what's important. And I think that having type one does that for me often, right? Like I talked about this idea of not being sure if you'll wake up 
having that once a month, that's not, (laughs) that's not normal for people. But I think from that springs immense gratitude for what my body can do. So this type one diabetes and pregnancy book that I'm reading, I like the perspective that they gave, which was my body might not do X, Y, Z, but it's amazing to see that my body can grow another life, right? Like, Mm -hmm. so focusing on positives and just being grateful for all the other faculties that are intact is something that I don't consciously do. It's just natural when you're facing things that don't work to really be grateful for the things that do work. I think on top of that, I'm super attuned to my body, right? Like, (laughs) I think I get annoying with friends and family, actually. I can only imagine that I'm annoying when somebody's like, oh, I have a headache. I'm the one that asks a hundred questions. Like, did you sleep enough? Are you hydrated? (laughs) Do you want to take a Tylenol? Do you think Advil works better? Do you think it's the light? You know, like I go through these list of questions because as someone with type one, I'm constantly trying to figure out, is this diabetes or is this something else? Right. And I have to act accordingly. And because of that, it's like always 100 questions when it comes to one small symptom. So it's caused me to be, I think, extra attuned to my body. And, you know, I feel something is a little different. I can spot it pretty quickly and have a remedy for it. And, you know, of course, spiral and learn a whole lot about something that might not even be the case. But now I have a lot more knowledge about one aspect of my health. (laughs) I think that in a weird way, it helps me be healthier in, in different aspects of my life. It might sound cliche, but really gratitude is the overwhelming and positive experience that I take from type 1 diabetes. And I think my ability to be positive, it's really largely by example. My parents are pretty positive people. My mom especially has faced some health issues. Like she had cancer when I was in high school. And she's healthy now. She's cancer-free, thank God. But her overwhelmingly positive attitude towards everything in life sometimes like, okay, mom, that's really not how things are. <laughs> but if you had to decide between despair and hope, I think she always chooses hope. And I think it's been a good example to follow and just to train yourself to be more grateful and positive rather than sort of focusing on the pain. And I think as I've gotten older, I've been able to navigate between those two realms of like, um, focusing and giving a voice and naming the stress and pain and heartache. In my personal experience, I think I know when I'm at a point where I need to stop venting because it's just going to start becoming this perpetual cycle of making myself even more sad. (laughs) I I think I've come up with different ways. What are your strategies? My strategies are really, really simple, really cute videos on the internet. <laughs> having episodes of shows that just put me in a better mood. I'll watch something like an episode of The Office or something funny like that. My latest binge has been Parks and Rec. I know that I can often choose to take my mind off things. You know, those things are still happening. and I'm still experiencing the stress or pain, but to the extent that I can distract myself, I try my best to and then come back to it when I'm ready so that I'm not exhausting myself with those emotions. That's a really great insight into what makes you so resilient, that you monitor not only your blood sugar, but you also monitor your emotional levels, and you balance learning to express when you're feeling something, but also not continue on a negative thought train, and you have ways to break the pattern. And I think that's a highly developed strategy you have there for dealing with something where on a day-to-day basis, everything is different. and. So I think that's amazing. And you just reminded me, as you said that, I realized the first strategy that I said was watching cute videos, which is definitely one of the first lines of defense, but I'm very extroverted, I think. And I have a lot of really good friends that are there for me if I need to talk to them, and including Dylan. So you know, when I'm going through something, 
it's really, really helpful for me to just pick up the phone and FaceTime somebody, a close friend, and tell them how I'm feeling or just ask them to talk about their day because it just distracts me <laughs> and it, it helps me focus on something else or laugh. So I think the power of laughter, I seek out laughing hard. <laughs> and it's easy to do when you call a friend and take your mind off of it that way. So I guess what I'm trying to say is the power of good friendship and keeping an open line of communication so that you say up front, like, hey, I actually need to be in a good mood right now. Let's have that type of conversation. (laughs) 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 Not just calling and hoping that they'll give you what you need, but asking for it. (laughs) (laughs) I have an anecdote that's going to definitely make you laugh. So before we began this interview, I read the questions aloud with my boyfriend and I said, oh, do you have any questions that you think I should add that I haven't thought of? What do you think of this? And he's like, oh, yes, I do. Why isn't she fat? <laughs> so to provide some context, my boyfriend is German. It's a stereotype that Germans are very direct and there's some truth to it. He means it like in a very direct way. Like if you think of someone diabetic, you maybe would think of someone overweight. Mm-hmm. Why isn't she fat? And he's not the only person that would think this. Maybe not everybody would say it, but other people might wonder as well. Could you give an explanation as to why your type of diabetes doesn't correlate to somebody's weight necessarily? I think it's actually a, it's a funny <laughs> question, <laughs> but I think it uncovers a lot, right? And I, I'll say type one and type two are often confused for each other because the outcome ends up being management of blood sugars. So you're dealing with similar symptoms, but definitely they're completely different diseases. As I shared earlier, type 1 is an autoimmune disease, which has a genetic component. But type 1, interestingly, isn't like a done deal. It's not like if you carry the genetic predisposition for type 1, it doesn't mean that you're going to get it. And the example for that is identical twins. One can form type 1 and the other one doesn't. So they call it a multifactorial disease where it's a genetic predisposition plus an environmental factor that actually triggers it. So for type 2, you also have genetic predisposition for type 2. And I think a lot has to do with lifestyle. I really am a big believer in making sure we understand what we mean by lifestyle. So I don't mean the lifestyle that people necessarily choose. I think it's the lifestyle that people fall into. It's very hard when people work, when people have families, and people might not have the knowledge or the money or the time or the ability for one reason or another to eat healthy or exercise or go against all these genetic forces, plus environmental forces of, for example, sitting 10 hours a day as your job, right? That's not healthy for anybody. And then later on developing type 2 diabetes, I think there's a lot of stigma around that. You know, I believed this all along, but I became an avid believer in the stigma around type 2 when my mom got diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. And my mom, just to give you a picture, is smaller than I am. She is very active. She weighs 100 pounds and she's not overweight by any measure. She's 71 and she is very, very active and she eats well. There's an epidemic of obesity that has taken hold in many different societies. And I think it's because of um, the way that work life is set up and because of nutritional marketing and how wrong it is. Going back to the example of drinking a glass of orange juice, if you do that every day and you share those sorts of habits through other types of eating habits, I think that just predisposes you in a way that you didn't know was leading you to the path of type 2 diabetes, right? So I think it's a that question of 
why aren't you overweight? Why don't you look fat? Or why do you look so healthy? Yeah, not perfectly healthy. Exactly. And I just think that our bodies are working really hard to not get heart disease or get type two diabetes or all these different cardiovascular diseases or high cholesterol. Or, and I think our bodies work really hard against the system that's in place. I mean, I know it's different in different societies, but really in America, the average person working behind a desk, sitting and then just breaking to eat something that they think is healthy, but really isn't and starting their breakfast with something that's not healthy that they think is, of course, it's going to result in people having type two diabetes and being more overweight. And I think one major pitfall in public health and the way we talk about type 2 diabetes is blaming the person and not the system that they really don't know how to get out of. I think there needs to be more health awareness and education around how to minimize the risk, but also there has to just be reform. You know, standing desks are not the cure. <laughs> I think uh-huh. that there needs to go much further than that. Well, if you start your day with orange juice and white bread, Mm -hmm. and have pizza for lunch, then there's only so much a standing desk can do. Exactly. I agree. And if you're getting home at 10 p.m. and the only thing you can do is order pizza or get food from the cafeteria because the lettuce looks like it's going to give you E. coli, (laughs) you know, like I think that we as a society have a big responsibility to also make it not easier, but possible for many people to know what they're eating, have access to what they should be eating, and also get more exercise. I think I've more and more become a systems-oriented advocate rather than, you know, we all have to fight against this big machine of basically a system that's designed to not really keep you healthy at all. Yeah, exactly. It's, It's really not. You also brought up a good point that we shouldn't judge people based on how they look. There's not necessarily the correlation. We assume that there is just because Fatima, you're beautiful, you know, you're petite, you're energetic, you're fun. It doesn't mean that you're not carrying a lot of stress and not faced with massive challenges every day just to stay alive. Yeah, exactly. You know, just taking time to understand people and the factors that influence their lives and their health and their abilities and their ability to stay healthy. I think we just as a society have to be more aware around snap judgments and just be more forgiving, right? I feel like I've seen this happen, the type 2 diabetes shaming where like, you know, you could have prevented this. People just don't know or don't realize. It's hard to understand nutrition. Truthfully, there's a lot that we're still learning about nutrition and how it affects people individually. You know, like nutrition for me is not the same as nutrition for you. What I'm predisposed to in terms of how I'm able to metabolize cholesterol and things like that, it's different for me than it is for anybody else. You know, everybody's so different. This model that we're now acknowledging more, which is personalized um, nutrition, I think is going to go a long way and it's really, really important. I think that you're right about that. Fatima, what is next for you? What projects do you have coming up? Oh, that's a good question. I enjoy my work now. I'm working on a genetic research program as my day job, but I really enjoy production and film and the art. Even though I've been working for a documentary that focuses on type 1 diabetes and researching a stem cell research-based cure, which I'd love to talk about more, it's called The Human Trial. That is in its final phases of editing. And I'd really love to look for more sort of film and maybe even acting projects. I think that would be really cool. And I think I've been encouraged by different things online and different small experiences that I've had. I feel a little bit more not out of place (laughs) pursuing, (laughs) which is great. 
So no exact response to that, but you know, I'm inspired also by you with this amazing podcast that you've started. I think there's so much to be shared with the world with individual stories and storytelling and any medium that helps me get there. I think that would be what's on my horizon, exploring that sort of new, new adventure. And you're very charismatic. So I can definitely see you working in front of, behind the camera, see you on screen. (laughs) Before I let you go today, I have three more questions for you. What is one book you recommend? I really love the type 1 diabetes and pregnancy book. And I think anybody should read it. (laughs) (laughs) I think think, um, just taking a completely new perspective and learning about what women go through in pregnancy, but also somebody with a chronic disease goes through, like maybe it's not a book that is something that somebody who doesn't experience either of these or doesn't relate to either would really otherwise pick up. But I think it's an interesting read. But I guess on a more serious or more relevant note, I would would recommend The Discovery of Insulin by Michael Bliss. It gives a really good picture, a historical picture of what it was like before insulin was discovered in the early 1900s. And essentially before insulin was discovered, any child with type 1 diabetes, basically there were wards full of children who were just waiting to die. And um, when it was discovered and it was administered, it was like almost like a morgue came back to life. Miracle. It was hailed as a cure at the time, right? Because if you're Comparing it to death, yes, it's management and it's a tough life, but they're still living, right? They're still coming back to life. So I would definitely highly recommend that. Also in the context of pricing of insulin today and drug pricing, it gives a good backstory on the mission to find this miracle drug insulin and how far we've come with it today and how it operates in our society today. Like the big problem now is access to it and actually affording it. Well, I have to pick up that book because I'd love to understand more about how understanding it better and remedies for it that work at least temporarily has changed the whole experience of it. Yeah. Yeah. I really recommend it. It's a good read. It's a very good medical journalism. I really love the book. And what is one place in the world you recommend everyone visit? You know, I know I shared a scary story about Iceland, but there was also amazing times, of course, overwhelmingly amazing times in Iceland. And I think more than the country itself, it's the type of vacation it was that I think made it stand out. Dill and I went and we had six days basically with no set plan. We were just going to drive around the island, the country. And we didn't even have our hotels booked. We would decide if we were energetic enough to keep going or if we wanted to stop. And that sort of complete detachment from routine and not really knowing what's coming up next and just taking in more of where we were and deciding if we wanted to stay there or not was beautiful. And of course, Iceland is just an amazing, magical place in terms of nature, the type of nature I've really never seen before. And the vistas were just so, so gorgeous. I would recommend going to Iceland with enough time and no real itinerary. I think that or anywhere with that sort of of vacation. It's a good way to reset and re-energize, especially with somebody that you love and like. (laughs) (laughs) It's on our list of one of the places we want to visit. (laughs) Yeah. Uh I think we talked about this to a varying degree, about one main way that you manage stress. Yeah. I think the main tactic that I've had to teach myself I like to communicate. I like to talk to friends, (laughs) but talking and deliberately being more vulnerable and sharing 
is not something that comes, I think, naturally to most people, or maybe it does, just didn't come naturally. It's to hard me. to do. I think um, being vulnerable is hard to do. It's not easy. So being deliberate in sharing how you're feeling and being patient in the response from the other person in that they might not at first really understand where you're coming from because you're all of a sudden just sharing something new, right? But building these spaces and cultivating the relationships that are safe spaces um, with close friends and people that you love or people that you maybe are not very close to, but they get it. So you're close only about this one thing. So for example, I have a lot of friends who are diabetic and I go to them and they come to me to talk specifically about you know this one experience, which is related to diabetes. So one way I do that is I've just become better at not compartmentalizing my emotions and not sharing with people close to me. I think that really deliberately sharing something that's coming up that's stressful for me or that's happening that's stressful for me has taken a, a weight off my shoulders, which is really nice. Um, so I guess a healthy way that I've created for managing stress is really making sure that I have spaces to turn to and divulge how I'm feeling that I set up before I, I hit those stressful times so that I have it when I need it. Oh, that's really good advice. Because also, it, when you have some compassion, when you have some empathy, that's also a very healing thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It really is. I think people also struggle. I mean, I do too, of course, with saying the right thing, but the power of just listening and being with somebody and just, you know, just listening to them and affirming them is, it goes a long way. You're right. Well, Fatima, Thank you so much for coming and for opening up and being vulnerable and talking about something that's very difficult and for giving me a greater understanding and anyone who's listening a greater understanding of what you have been through and what you go through on a continual basis so that now I know better when I meet someone who's diabetic, now I have a better understanding of what kind of challenges that they're facing. So maybe me and other people can be more compassionate to them in the future. So thank you for talking about all of this, Fatima. Yeah, thanks, Katie. You know, I like to talk about it, but hopefully you're helping me practice what I preach <laughs> with being vulnerable and talking to a lot of people and strangers who uh, maybe I'll never meet about this very personal thing. So I'm very happy that you asked me to talk about it. And I think it's helped me just sharing even in this sort of forum is helpful for the future for me in, in internalizing the different things that I go through. So, so thank you. Well, you're welcome. And it was my honor to have you as my guest today. Come back when you're talking about your future film projects. Yes, I'd love mm -hmm. to. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Bye, Fatima. Bye. I am linking to Fatima's social media as well as her LinkedIn. If you have questions for her or if you want to get in touch with her. You will find all of this information on the show notes at beautyiseternal.com.